All right, Mark 16. Uh, we're down, we, we finished the book last time, really, verse 19 and 20. Uh, there's a couple things here I want to go back in this week and next and uh, just kind of housekeeping, clean them up a little bit, touch on a couple things uh, that we read here, verse 19. So then after the Lord had spoken unto them, he was received up into heaven and sat on the right hand of God. And they went forth and preached everywhere, the Lord working with them and confirming the word with signs following. And again, we're looking at that issue. I just want to spend some time looking at that issue of and sat on the right hand of God. Now, that, that phrase, sat on the right hand of God, it's used several times in Scripture. And it's used in Acts 2 when Peter quotes Psalm 110. It's used over in Hebrews. We'll get there in just a little bit. Come over with me to Luke 22. Because that phrase, when Jesus Christ dies, he's buried, he's resurrected, he spends 40 days with the disciples opening their understanding of the scriptures, and he gets them all set so that then they can go and occupy that, that uh, parable of the nobleman. He's going to go off to receive a kingdom, and in return, and while he's off, he, he gives charge to the servants to occupy. they got an occupation. They have a job to do. And when he does that, then he's going to return. So here we have the Lord go off. He's, he's getting them ready. They're ready. He ascends up into heaven, and then they go to work. But when he does, he sits on the right hand of God. And that, that's a, uh, again, that gets repeated over and over again. So it's something that um, I think we need to be aware of. And then, so we'll do it tonight. This will be, is our lesson 119. Next week will be the round number 120, okay? I could stop it last week and we could do something else at 118, but I, this is, to me, is fascinating. It's very interesting. And it's something that uh, Luke 22 is something that we need to be uh, aware of uh, in, in our scripture. Uh, in Luke 22, we have Christ here. He's the night of the trial. Uh, he's going to the cross. Verse 66, he makes this statement. And again, he's in front of the, the Sanhedrin, the council. Uh, and as soon as it was day, Luke twenty-two sixty-six, the elders of the people and the chief priests and the scribes came together and led him into their council, saying, Art thou the Christ? Tell us. And he said unto them, If I tell you, ye will not believe. Now, he's in front of the council. This phony trial, all they're trying to do is kill him. So when they ask him, tell us, are you the Christ? Are you the Messiah? They're not, they really don't care what his answer is. They're just kind of covering their, 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 their bases. They're just kind of covering themselves. So the phony trial has happened. You tell us. And again, by the way, he never really answers them about, yes, I am. He just, you know, hey, look, if you, would have believed, if you would have believed what Moses and them wrote, then you would believe that, that they were talking about me. And he just kind of always, that was always the answer. Now, look at verse 68. And if I also ask you, will ye not answer me, nor let me go? So they ask him, again, verse 67, Art thou the Christ? Tell us. 
He said unto them, If I tell you, you will not believe, and if I also ask you, you will not answer me, nor let me go. Hereafter shall the Son of Man sit on the right hand of the power of God. So he, he, in essence, there in verse 69, he's quoting Psalms 110, verse 1. See, he's telling them, I am the guy that Psalms 110 said was coming and is talking about, I'm the one. Verse 70, then said they all, art thou then the son of God? And he said unto them, ye say that I am. And they said, what need we any further witnesses for we ourselves have heard of his own mouth. And again, he's, when he says to them, verse 69, I'm going to sit, the Son of Man, sit on the right hand of the power. Okay? The, the right hand, that's the power position. He's going to, he, he in essence is saying, I am the Messiah. I am who Psalms 110 is talking about. I am the one the verses are talking about. And if you would believe the verses, then you'll believe me. So in Mark 16, when he says this at the end and sat on the right hand of God, it's a very important statement by Mark. Uh, he is sitting at the right hand of God. He's sitting in the, in the right hand of the power of God. He is Messiah. And that's really the whole issue. When he goes in, when he ascends into heaven and he sits at the right hand of God, he that 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 is that place of authority. It's the place of power. Uh, come on over to Acts 2. And the right hand of God is where all authority comes from. And the Father sits him there. And the Father puts him there. In Acts 2, we have the day of Pentecost. By the way, John 7 there, I think it's John 7 or John 8, he talks about when the Lord is, is glorified, then the Holy Ghost comes. So when, when the day of Pentecost comes and the Holy Ghost falls on them, they're, they're acting weird. Peter, you know, they're like, they don't understand how they can speak in tongues and why they can hear them. Peter stands up and begins to tell them why. He says there in verse 22, 23, 24, you, with, you, you crucified and slain the, 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 the Messiah. God raised him up, and the one that God raised him up, you guys killed him. God raised him up, and now he's going to send him back. And he's going to send him back as Lord and Christ. Look, if you will, at verse 34. For David is not ascended into the heavens, but he saith himself, the Lord... So the capital L-O-R-D there, that's Jehovah the Father, said unto my Lord, sit thou on my right hand, and that's Psalms 110 verse 1, until I make thy foes thy footstool. Now again, Psalms 110 says enemies. So a foe and an enemy are different even though they're similar. And foe is an active enemy, someone who's actively resisting. Verse 36, therefore let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God hath made the same Jesus whom ye have crucified, both Lord, that's the judge, and Christ, and that's the Savior aspect. So 
Peter tells them he's going to be the one who's going to judge you or save you. And you know what? He's sitting on the right hand of God. He's sitting there right now. And he's, then he's going to stand to make his foot. He's going to come back. Come over to Hebrews chapter number 1. So when you think about the sitting at the right hand of God, there, there's some things that are happening here in Israel's program that Mark is making an allurement to. And these are, you know, Peter's going to pick it up and again, uses the same terminology and moves it on because there's a, there is a thought, a doctrine all through the scripture concerning the right hand of God. Here, he's going to be the right hand of the majesty on high, verse 1, uh, Hebrews 1, verse 1. God, who at sundry times and in divers' manner spake in time past unto the fathers by the prophets, hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son. It's interesting, when the Lord spoke to them, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, it is the last days of Israel's program. See, they have this different mentality. Whom he hath appointed heir of all things, by whom also he made the worlds, who, being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. So the right, so he's sitting down at the right hand of God is is sitting down on the right hand of the power of God, sitting here, sitting on the right hand of the majesty of God. All terms used interchangeably here. Majesty, if you think about the idea behind majesty is greatness. The majesty of God, he's talking about the greatness of God. There is no one greater than God. That's the idea when he talks about majesty on high. He is the top dog. He's it. Uh, Come over to uh, chapter 8. Notice here. It's it's quoted a number of times in in Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 8. Hebrews 8 verse 1. Hebrews 8 verse 1. Actually four times this sitting down at the right hand of the majesty on high is, is used. Uh, uh, Hebrews 8, verse 1. Now of the things which we have spoken, this is the sum. We have such a high priest who is set on the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. Now that's a critical verse filled with a lot of information. He sat down on the right hand of the throne. Now we've got a throne in play. The throne. There's the issue of governmental authority. So now we're, we're broadening this issue of he sat down on the right hand of God, the, the power of God, the right hand of the majesty of God. So we've got this, now we've got the throne. And by the way, of the majesty, where is this located at? In the heavens. So it's not here on the earth now. Again, it, it's important to see where this throne is. And we'll look, we'll, we're going to be looking into that as we go along. It's where? It's in the heavens. So you've got this, he sits down at the right hand of God, 
the right hand of the power of God, the right hand of the majesty of God. Now we've got this right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. So you, you're getting, a, I hope, a picture here of what we're talking about. Uh, come over to chapter 12. Chapter 12 of Hebrews. Here again, verse 2. Hebrews 12, verse 2. So you've, you're, we're beginning to develop a picture here about what the Lord is doing. So he's in the heaven, the third heaven in the Father. He's sitting on the right hand down on the earth. The little flock is out doing their, their program. He's, they're out. Peter and the guy, boys are out doing early Acts ministry. But he's sitting here, and there's something that's going on here. Uh, Hebrews 12, verse 2. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is set down on the right hand of the throne of God. So again, again, that issue of throne, that the issue of governing government authority, governing authority. And he, by the way, the joy that was set before him, he understands that kingdom glory is coming. That, and so he's looking for that. He's sitting down, he's sitting down, and again, he endured the, the cross, despising the shame. It's connected with the cross work. All the sitting down, the power, the throne, all of this is associated with his cross activity. Uh, if you go back to chapter 1, and on your way, get chapter 10. Well, just go to chapter 1. Then we'll go to chapter 10 and get the last of the four here. Chapter 1, verse 3. On this idea of it all being associated with the cross work. Chapter 1, verse 3. Who, being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when... So see the time element, the word of his power when he had by himself purged our sins. Then what did he do? Sat down on the right hand. Now come to Hebrews 10 and look at verse 10. Because why does he sit down? Well, there's, there's a connection here. Look at Hebrews 10.10. 10. By the which will, and that which that will is back up in verse Five, six, seven, and eight, nine. We are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. It's not a continual thing. It's a one-time event. It's done. All of the beating, all of the cutting, all of the messing with the Lord, with the Lord, with His body is all done. One sacrifice did the work forever. Verse eleven. And every priest standeth daily, ministering and offering oftentimes the same sacrifice, which can never take away the sin, their sin, uh, take away sins. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down on the right hand of God. So what did he do? He goes one sacrifice once for all. The one sacrifice satisfied the justice of God. 
And as soon as all of that was done, then he went and sat down on the right hand of God. Why did he go sit down? The redemptive, the work of redemption is done. See, there's no more to do. So he sits down, verse 13, from henceforth expecting till his enemies be made his footstool. He sits down because, number one, the redemptive work is done, and now he's expecting his enemies to be made. He's going to sit there till his enemies are made his footstool. So there's a, so there's a progression here in Israel's program, Okay. Here's the earthly ministry of the Lord. We go to Calvary. He's, he's dead, buried, ascend, uh, ascends, uh, uh, resur- resurrects, spends 40 days with them. He's then taken. He's sitting at the right hand of God the Father. Now, if you think about the earthly ministry back here, the, Luke's, in, in Luke he says that the law and the prophets... We're till John the Baptist. With John, now we're preaching the kingdom, right? And everybody presses into that. So the next progression in Israel's program is kingdom. Now we have Messiah show up. So now we're in the next progression. He's going to sit till it's time to come back, make his enemies his footstool, and then to set up the kingdom. You follow? So there's a progression here. But in the sitting at the right hand, there's a throne involved, which is right here. There's the throne. And there's a majesty, and there's a greatness here. That chalk just doesn't want to be nice tonight, does it? So when you think about this, the sitting down is done with the view of the second coming, the time to pour out the wrath, the time to, this is the 70th week of Daniel. It's time to come back and deal with the enemies. So in Acts, by the way, this is Acts 2, where he ascends up. In Acts 7, Stephen sees him standing. See. Standing to do what? Well, my enemies are my footstool, my foes are my footstool. Now it's time to come back and pour out the wrath. Now he interrupts it with the body and the dispensation of the grace of God. So, we have an interruption there. Come over to Luke. Well, you're in Hebrews. Notice Hebrews 1, just real quick. So, this is the next step in the prophetic process of the kingdom program. Again, when we started Mark, we talked about gapping the gap. I don't know if you remember that. So, the 69 weeks of... Daniel come to a conclusion right at the time of the cross, the week before the cross. And from that time all the way out, whoops, I went too far. 
to the beginning of the 70th week is a gap of time that no one has any idea of how long that's going to be. The early, and, and in this, according to Daniel 9, the, the crucifixion is going to happen, the cutting off of the Messiah. The city's going to be destroyed, the wall, and there's going to be wars and rumors of wars and uh, war, war and, you know, just all that stuff going on. Well, then the Lord, he gaps this and says, give me a year to dung around the tree again, and that's the axe period, before we cut it off. But this, so, and then, by the way, we, <laughs> there's the D-O-G, we gap the gap. We gap it actually before any of this city and all that stuff later in Daniel 9 happens. Now, I say all that because what we're talking about is a timing issue here. After the 40 days, Acts 2, he's ascended, and he sits. But he sits because the redemptive work is done, and it's time to wait now so he can come back and pour out his wrath. His enemies are his footstool. Now, by the way, look at Hebrews 1 and verse 2. And by the way, this fits Luke 19 and the nobleman, the parable of the nobleman. What was the nobleman going to do? He's going to go. He's going to leave him, go get the kingdom. While he comes, his servants go. And he says, occupy till I come back. Okay? That's what he's going to do. The whole picture here, the whole scheme of the prophetic program is being carried out. There's nothing new in Acts at all. There's no new dispensation. There's no grace. There's not, it's a next step on the prophetic program timeline. Hebrews 1 verse 2, Hath in these last days spoken unto us by his Son, whom he hath appointed, notice, heir of all things. Christ is going to inherit all things based upon Calvary, based upon his work at Calvary. Now, come back to First Chronicles chapter 29, because we're going to look at some things here. The all things... That's not the trees and the grass and the, you know, the buildings. He's, when he talks about all things, think about Colossians 1, think visible, invisible, whether they be thrones, dominions, powers, principalities, mights, all that, all that governmental rule. Because when God created the heaven and the earth, there's more than just the physical. Actually, it, Amos 9 says that he created stories in the heaven. There's governmental structures that he, that he develops, that he creates. And when he does that, he, he fills it with creatures who are willingly choosing intelligently to come and worship and obey and to do him. He's not looking for robots, see. We got this idea that God just wants a bunch of robots. No, not at all. Actually, as we go along, we will see where God allows uh, the angelic creatures out there. And by the way, the, the angels have different classes, different statuses within them. You got cherubims and seraphims and, and uh, uh, 
watchers. You've got different classes. And he allows those, those hosts to, who, you've got sons of God, you've got morning stars, you've got different classes of angels that he brings in, puts them in authority, lets them, here's my will, here's how you're going to do it, and go, lets them go do it. So, and we'll see some of that this week and next week as we think about this idea of sitting on the right hand of the throne of the majesty of God. In 1 Chronicles 29, we have David. Uh, David's going to give thanks here. We're going to jump in, verse 10. 1 Chronicles 29, 10. Wherefore David blessed the Lord before all the congregation, and David said, Blessed be thou, Lord God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Thine, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. Now, that's the idea, that's the majesty of God. For all that is in the heaven and in the earth is thine. Thine is the kingdom, O Lord, and thou art exalted as head above all. He is head, he's exalted as head ruler over all the land. He is, he's called the, the most high God. And most high, back in Genesis, is defined as possessor of heaven and earth. That's why Lucifer in Isaiah 14, part of, it says, I will be like the Most High. I will be like God, the possessor of heaven and earth. And so what, what David's doing here is here's the one who has the right to rule everything. So when you think about him sitting on the right hand of the majesty on high, the power of God, the throne of the majesty, he is sitting in that position as rightful ruler, mainly because he went to Calvary. The redemption work is done. But then also now he's going to be the judge. Again, that's Lord and Christ. Christ, Savior, Redeemer, or Lord, Judge. And he's going to go do that. Come over to Job 30, 37. So the majesty, God's majesty, has to do with him being the ultimate ruler in the end. Job 37, if you look there at verse 22, Job 37, 22. Fair weather cometh out of the north, with God is terrible majesty. Touching the Almighty, we cannot find out him out. He is excellent in power and in judgment and in plenty of justice. He will not afflict. Think about that. He has this tremendous greatness and it's beyond our comprehension. He's the ruler. And he can, he, he, all the power is his. If you hold on to, well, shoot, don't hold, let it go. Let it go. Come over to 2 Peter chapter 1. Peter is going to talk about this, about his majesty, the power, the greatness, 
all of it, that stuff in 1 Chronicles 29, describing what it makes up the majesty of God. He's exalted as the head ruler over all the land. He is God, the most high God. 2 Peter 1, if you start in verse 15, Peter says, Moreover, I will endeavor that ye may be able, after my departure, to have these things always in remembrance. For we have not followed cunning devised fables when we made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father honor and glory. When there came such a voice to him from the excellent glory, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well, please. Now, Peter's making a reference to Matthew 17, the Mount Transfiguration. On the mountain of Transfiguration, what did they eyewitness? His majesty. His, they literally saw his majesty when he was declared to be the, my beloved son, when he was declared to be Messiah, the rightful king. So the, the throne and the, the, the majesty, it's talking about him being the king, the Messiah, not just how wonderful he is, see. There's something deeper happening here, not just how wonderful he is, not just how great God is, but rather the specific role and relationship that he now has with his universe. It's his. He's the creator. Uh, come over to Jude. You're in Second Peter. Look at Jude. Jude says it this way. See, there's a so when he ascends up and sits down on the right hand of God and the Majesty on high and so forth, he's he. It's time for him now to assume a very specific role and a very specific relationship. He's now the rightful ruler. Why? The redemptive work is done, and he's waiting to come back the Lord's day, carry out the, the wrath of the Lord. So there's, he's rightful ruler, rightful king. He's the one whom all, where all greatness resides. He's it. Paul calls him the only potentate. He's the potentator. He is it. Jude 25, to the only wise God, our Savior, be glory, and majesty, dominion, there's the throne, there's government, and power, both now and forever, amen. What Jude is talking about is the governmental structure that he's the head over. Come back with me to Psalms 82. Psalms 82. We have looked at some of this in our men's fellowship over the last couple years, some of this information, and I'll share some of it with you tonight. When he comes to sit to be the majesty on high, when he goes, think about when he goes to, and he's sitting there in the throne of God's majesty, there are creatures around the throne room. 
And there's a group in, of, in that angelic creation that rule with him, okay? There's a crazy thought that God just barks the orders and everybody carries them out. Again, he doesn't want, he doesn't want robots. He has, I guess you have to really kind of think about how God runs his universe, <laughs> I don't know if you ever think about that. It's an interesting thing to think about that. It isn't that God rules it by himself, pulling the strings, making all the decisions, but rather he has a whole group of created, I, I call them the angelic creation because I don't know of any other name to call them, okay? Administrators. Advisors. In Jeremiah, he calls them his counsel. And they help run the universe. 82.1, Psalms 82.1. God standeth in the congregation of the mighty. He judgeth among the gods. Notice that's a little g. He, called, he calls them together. In the congregation of the mighty. So here's God, creator, and he's judging among the little, little gods. These, by the way, these are angels. They're, they're angelic cre creatures that he has sent out to represent him in, in his creation. He now calls them together in a congregation. He calls them together to give an account of themselves, of what they've been doing, okay? Now, stick something in Psalms 82 and come over to Job, or back to Job chapter 1. In Isaiah 14, one of the things that Satan says is, I will exalt my throne above the mount of the congregation of the north. You remember that? Okay, uh, I'll give you the right reference. Isaiah 14 and verse 13. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. That's what Psalms 82 1 is talking about, the congregation of the mighty. And what happens is, is as God create, as God sends out these representatives to go and to do his will in the creation, in the universe, they then come and give an account of themselves. Uh, Job 1, by the way, this is what's happening in Job 1. In Job 2, verse 6. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came also among them. So that's what's happening. They're coming to present themselves to to the Lord, to God. Chapter 2, verse 1. Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came also among them to present himself before the Lord. Even Satan is under command to do this. So they come to give an account to God of what they've been out doing. And again, Satan too. That's why Satan's, you know, he asked him, where have you been? I've been running the earth, to and fro, running around, doing, he's accounting. You see, you and I, and, and you got to think about this thing about Satan. 
You, we rub shoulders with lost people all day long, no matter where you go. We had, uh, we're getting a new back door at the house, the last piece of the remodel, and the guy's come to measure it, and he's a lost hound dog going to hell. He's lost, is lost, and yet he's there doing his thing, nicest guy ever. So there's, you should not be shocked when in the angelic realm, the spiritual realm, you've got the elect angels and the fallen angels doing what? Rubbing elbows with each other, see? Okay? They're just like you and I are. So here's Satan. So the Lord calls them together, and then they begin to give their account. Now, it's interesting that in this account, the ones giving the account, he calls them the sons of God. Okay? And that's going to be key here. Uh, come over to chapter 38 of Job. Because you've got to think about this. In Psalms 82, he called them the congregation of the mighty. Isaiah 14, he's going to sit in the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. And again, that's what Psalms 82 is talking about. It's what Job 1 is talking about, a place where God gathers together the decision makers, those that he has assigned responsibility to over the various parts of the government of the universe, and they come and they give an account. And again, Satan... You know, basically what Satan's saying is Isaiah 14 is, I want the angelic creation to answer to me. I am, I'm, I'm the guy, see. That's what he's saying. Now, Job 38, it's an interesting passage here. Job chapter 38, you just start in verse 4. Where was thou when I laid the foundations of the earth? Declare if thou hast understanding. Who hath laid the measures thereof, if thou knowest, or who hath stretched the line upon it? Whereupon are the foundations therefore fastened, or who laid the cornerstone thereof? Now watch. When the morning stars sang together. So there's a group, morning stars. And all the sons of God shouted for joy. See, there's two, group, there's two classes there. Revelation, he calls the stars, he calls the angels stars. But here, he's not only are they morning stars. By the way, Satan is, Lucifer is the son of the morning, see. He's an administrative guy. The morning stars and then the sons of God. So you've got two different statuses just right here of the angels. By the way, you have seraphims, teraphims. That's the, ones, that's the word I was looking for. Cherubs. You've got different classes of angelic creatures. And again, you can call them what you want. But what they're doing, uh, by the way, Paul in Colossians 1 says that these guys are invisible. So we, we, they're just not where we can see them. All right? So when you think about what's happening here, you think about... This issue of the sons of God, very special term, the son of God. Um, in Luke 3, Adam, the end of Mary's genealogy, is the son of God. Adam was a direct creation of God. All right? 
So when you think about son of God, you're talking about a direct creation from God. You and I are not sons of God in the physical manner the way we were born. But Romans 8 says spiritually, what are we? Sons of God. Why? Because we're born directly from that issue. So there's something deeper in that term than just being a creature of God, Create a direct creation. Okay, when you think about son, in Scripture, you're talking about an adult in the family. And an adult in the family is, is created to work with the father. But when you do that, it's all, also you'll hear a term sonship. Now, it gets beat up, but we're talking about sonship. And what we're talking about is son, as adults, as sons of God, is when you understand what the, what the Father is doing, and then you go and work with Him, and then you go learn what He's doing, and then you turn and you go delight in doing it on your own. You don't just obey the Father because you're told to do it, but now what you're doing is you're choosing willingly to go and to do the work of the Father because you see not only the value in it, but then you make it yours and you do it this way and you may end up making it even better. See, My son, Ricky, he, I pointed to the office, he's not in there, but when we, he, he understands what we're doing, I look at him and say, you got what I need done, what we're doing? Now go do it. <laughs> and he does it a lot differently than sometimes than I would do. Actually, most of the time it's better than what I would have done. See, That's the issue of, of an adult. In Exodus 4, Moses, Israel is called the firstborn son. Israel, God had desired to have a nation in the earth that understood what he was doing in the earth and then would be delighted in going and doing his will. Romans 8, we're called sons. We're adults in the family. We know what's going on. We know what the will of the Father is, and we delight in doing that. But choosing to do it, see, we're not... So the sonship and adulthood, and adult, it's, it's that step beyond the child. The child is told and obeys out of being told. You see, being a son is much more than just being in the family. But rather, it's looking at it and going, you know what? I understand what dad wants done, the father wants done, and I'm, I can do that. And I can do this, and it'll be better, and the benefit will move on. See, that's what being a son, the sons of God. So there's, there's the sons of God, this angelic creation, which we're looking at. Then you've got Israel, by the way, John 1, he came in 11 and 12. He gave them the power to become the sons of God. And then Romans 8, we're the sons of God. So these guys here are angels that are in the status of being responsible for making choices based upon their status in the family as adults. Again, Lucifer, Isaiah 14, he's called the son of the morning. He was created to be an administration, to be 
an administrator in the government. He was actually the five-star general, if you think about an order. He was top. Right above him was nobody but God, the Godhead. That's why pride got him. So what God desires here is to have participation from his creation, have participation within his creation who know what the creator is doing, who understands what creation is all about, who then go and understand not only what's going on and what he's doing, but what he's trying to accomplish. And then they're there willingly choosing to participate in what he's doing. Now, go back to Psalms 82. I told you to save it, and then I didn't. So Psalms 82. And that's who we're talking about in Psalms 82 in the congregation of the mighty. Now, in verses 2, verse 1, God standeth in the congregation of the mighty. He judges among the gods. How long will ye, that's the congregation of the mighty, the, the, the angelic realm, see, judge unjustly and accept the persons of the wicked. See, they're not doing what they're supposed to have been doing. These guys are not operating according to the will of the Father. They're not doing So verse 5, they know not, neither will they understand. They walk on in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are out of course. They're walking in darkness. They're not administrating justly, see. They're, rather than doing God's will and what God would have done, they are in rebellion. Whose rebellion? The adversary. Satan has fallen. He's causing them to rebel. Verse 6, I have said, ye are gods, and all of, ye, ye, all of you are, the ch- are children of the Most High. But ye shall die like men. By the way, that's how you know he's not talking about men. See? You're going to die like men and fall like one of the princes. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for thou shalt inherit all nations. Again, what's he... He says, verse 6, you're going to, you're the children of the Most High, the possessor of heaven and earth. He's the one that set up the structure in the universe to do all of this. They are children, by the way, they're not sons, they're not functioning. When he says, ye are gods and all of you are children of... They're not functioning as the sons of God here. They're not functioning as adults. They're in rebellion. So verse 7 and 8, here's the second coming. And again, the whole goal of establishing Israel in the earth was so that he could come and rescue all the nations, the end of verse 8 here, from satanic captivity. All of it. He's coming to do that. All the the structure, and that's what I really kind of want you to see here, that he has in order to to run, to administer the government of the heavens. Come over to Colossians chapter 1. That's why Paul talks this way. That's why Paul uses this terminology. See, Paul 
talks about this, uses this terminology because Paul, by the way, you've got to remember who Paul is. He's a scholar of the Old Testament. And he sees this all through the Old Testament. He understands, we're going to go over to Jeremiah 23. We're going to go look at Daniel 4. We've been in 1 Chronicle. Paul is clearly understands that, but he uses terminology like this. Verse 16, for by him, Colossians 1:16, for by him were all things created that are in heaven and that are in earth. Back to Genesis 1:1. Whether uh, uh, created in heaven, that are in heaven and that are in earth, visible and invisible. Okay, now he's going to use terms that are going to describe the invisible realm and the visible realm. What does he say? Whether they be thrones or dominions or principalities or powers, all things were created by him and for him. And he is before all things, and by him all things consist. Again, what are the all things? Thrones, powers, dominions, principalities. In Ephesians 2, he's got mites and every other name that's named. He's talking about governmental structure. So when Christ created the heaven and the earth, the first thing he created was this structure that was designed to operate in the universe. He filled it with creatures who were going to go out willingly choosing to do and to perform his will. Some rebelled. Some did not. You and I, in the heavenly places, we're going to fill up that organizational structure in the heavens. Israel will fill up that structure in the earth. That's Ephesians 1, 9, 10. Okay? Now, come back with me to Jeremiah 23. Jeremiah 23. So, when you think about the end of Mark sat down on the right hand of God, he de- he's able to do that because the redemptive work's done. He's doing that to re- till his enemies are made his footstool, but he's assuming the rightful role that's his as ruler of the universe. Jeremiah 23, if you look here at verse 18, 23, 18. For who has stood, now look, in the counsel of the Lord, and hath perceived and heard his word? Who hath marked his word and heard it? You see, the, there, are some, there are some creatures standing in his counsel. What he's advising them. He's instructing them on a how to do some things how to carry out his will. The congregation of the mighty, the angelic world, he comes in, come over to Daniel chapter 4. He counsels them. He counsels this group of, of sons of God. He gathers them together. He gives them instructions on what he wants done in the universe. Then he invites them to participate with him in the carrying out of it. So, so if you think, uh, Daniel 4, if you think about this, it's like an like a, a administrative board and a, a, a council. It's set up 
to administrate God's creation. Now again, he could do it by barking the orders and carrying it out and making it done. But in Scripture, it's not that way. He has a will. He's got a purpose that he wants carried out in creation. He then invites that creation to come and participate with him. He invites them to come freely, willingly, intelligently, choosing to participate with him. He's got a group, trains them to think like he thinks, then sends them out to do what he would do in those situations. And again, that's not... That's expanding what he's doing. Now, in Daniel chapter 4, you have Nebuchadnezzar here. We'll use this one because of time, and then we'll pick up here next week and tie the rag on the bush. In Daniel 4, you have Nebuchadnezzar. He's the king of, of all. He's the head of gold, okay? And he's kind of, he's get, he, get, he has a, a vision here, verse 4. And I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at rest in my house and flourishing in my palace. I saw a dream which made me afraid, and the thoughts upon my bed and the visions of my head troubled me. (laughs) Therefore made I a decree to bring in all the wise men of Babylon before me, that they might know how, uh, make known unto me the interpretation of the dream. Then came in the magicians, the astrologers, the Chaldeans and the soothsayers, and I told the dream before them, but they did not make known unto me the interpretation thereof. So he's got a dream. He tells them they can't interpret. So who does he call? Verse 8, he calls Daniel. But at the last, Daniel came in before me, whose name was Belshazzar, according to the name of my God, and in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. See how Nebuchadnezzar knows there's other gods out there? See, he knows that there's different things. And before him I told the dream, saying, and in, from verse 9 to 13, he, he gives him the dream. Now, watch verse 13. I saw in the visions of my head upon the bed, and behold, a watcher and a holy one came down from heaven. So now we have a watcher, one of the gods, We have a holy one, and they come down from heaven. So we've got a, so not only do we have the mighty, the congregation of the mighty, the sons of God, the morning stars, the son of the morning, the cherubim, the seraphim, the teraphim. Now we have a watcher, and we have a holy one. Verse 14, he cried aloud and said thus, Hew down the tree, cut off his branches, shake off his leaves, Scatter his fruit, lest the beast get away from under it and the fowls from his branches. Nevertheless, leave the stump of all his roots in the earth, even with a, with a band of iron and brass and the tender grass of the field, and let it be uh, wet with the, with the dew of heavens, and let his portion be with the beast in the grass of the earth. Let his heart be changed from man's, and let a beast's heart be given unto him, and let seven times pass over him. Now, that's lycanthropy is what they call it today, but basically Nebuchadnezzar is going to go nuts, and he spends some time out there uh, eating grass and acting like an animal, okay? 
But now watch verse 17. This matter is by the decree of the watchers and the demand by the word of the holy ones to the intent that the living may know that the Most High ruleth in the kingdom of men and giveth it to whomsoever he will and setteth up over it the basis of men. So who made this decree? The watcher did. The demand of the holy ones. Now, why are they making the decree? So that the living will know that the Most High ruleth. Verse 18, this dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, have seen. Now thou, O Belshazzar, declare the interpretation thereof, for as much as all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known unto me the interpretation, but thou art able, for the spirit of the holy God is in thee. And what does Daniel do? Daniel gives him the interpretation. I'm going to drop down to verse 20, 20 uh, well, verse 19. So, What's going to happen here? This is a decree of the watcher, demand of the Holy One, the angelic creation. They see what Nebuchadnezzar's been doing. They step in and they make a decree so that all will know who is the real, the real, the real king, who's really running the show. Isn't ne see, Nebuchadnezzar's got a big head. He's, I'm it. Nobody can touch me. I'm the head of gold. Boom. And the watchers come in and say, yeah, don't forget there's one bigger than you, the Most High. You, you see what's happening here? Who's making this decree, though? The angelic creation, see. So verse 19, then Daniel, whose name was Belshazzar, was astonished, was a stone for one hour, and his thoughts troubled him. The king spake and said, Belshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation thereof trouble thee. Belshazzar answered and said, My lord, the dream be to them that hate thee, and the interpretation thereof to thine enemies, that the tree that thou sawest which grew and was strong, whose height reached unto the heaven, and the sight thereof to all the earth, whose leaves were fair, and the fruit thereof much, and in, in it was meat for all, under which the beasts of the field dwelt, and upon whose branches the fowls of the heaven had their habitation, it is thou, O king, thou art grown and become strong. For thy greatness is grown and reacheth unto heaven and thy dominion to the end of the earth. And whereas the king saw a watcher and a holy one coming down from heaven and saying, Hew the tree down and destroy it, yet leave the stump of the roots thereof in the earth, even with a brand, uh, I'm sorry, a band of iron and brass and the tender grass of the field, and let it be wet with the dew of heaven, and let his portion be with the beast of the field till seven time pass over. That's seven years. This is the interpretation, uh, O king, and this is the decree of the Most High, which has come upon my Lord the King, that they should drive thee from, and off they go. Well, wait a minute. Whose decree is it? In Nebuchadnezzar's dream, it's the decree of who? The watchers and the holy, the angelic creation. But Daniel says in the interpretation, whose decree is it? It's the decree of the Most High. So what the watcher and the holy one are doing is they are applying and executing 
the will of the Most High. What is the Most High's will here? I want, yes, the king is great. I set him that way. I'm the one that put him there. He needs to be reminded of that. And all of creation needs to be reminded that I'm the one that put him there. I'm the one that gave Judah to Israel to him. I'm the most high possessor of heaven and earth. The watchers, they know the will of the most high. They designed a plan to come and to accomplish it. Follow that? So they, what they're, God didn't tell them, you go down there and tell Nebuchadnezzar this. God said, my will is, as I am the possessor of heaven and earth, I am the most high. We're going to do this over here with Nebuchadnezzar and the Gentiles of the times of the Gentiles because of Israel being in the fifth course and so forth and all that. And Israel has failed. See, and Daniel says the watchers decided this to happen to you in order for what God says, what his will would be accomplished. You see, they know what the will of God is, and they made some choices on how to apply that will in the life of Nebuchadnezzar, of Nebi. God didn't bark an order. He says, here's my will, here's my purpose, here's my plan. They understood it. And when they came up against something in an end time with Nebuchadnezzar, then he says, okay, here's the deal. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to make you go out here and act like an animal for seven years. And then you're going to be, and that will show all who really, that the Most High ruleth in the kingdom of men. Now, come over to Revelation 4. It's time to quit, but you can see these guys. Here they are in Revelation 4. So when Paul says, Colossians 1 and Ephesians, again, Paul is thinking like an Old Testament scholar. He, he understands how God, how God created the universe to work. He comes in, and in Colossians 1, he says, you know what? you got to think like Daniel. And these guys, they're organized in such a way in that angelic realm. God's sitting at the head. Here's the will. Here's my thinking. Here's what I want done. And then he organized them out so that they can come out here and, and do the work and, and who are willing to work with the Most High to accomplish his will. They rebelled. They're not willing. They're rebellious. He'll deal with them. In Revelation 4, you see them here, verse 1. After this I looked, and behold, a door was opened in heaven, and the first voice which I heard was, as it were, of a trumpet talking with me, which said, Come up hither, and I will show thee things which must be hereafter. And immediately I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne was set in heaven, and one sat on the throne, and he that sat was to look upon like a jasper and a sardine stone. And there was a rainbow round about the throne in the sight like unto an emerald. And round about the throne. So we're in the throne room here of God, of the, mag the throne of the majesty on high. We've got four and twenty seats. And upon the seats I saw four and twenty elders sitting, clothed in white raiment, and they had on their heads crowns of gold. And out of the throne proceeded lightnings and thunders and voice 
there were seven lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was a sea of glass like unto crystal. And in the midst of the throne, round about the throne, were four beasts full of eyes before and behind. And the first beast, by the way, these are uh, teraphim, uh, the, uh, not, seraphim, sorry, Isaiah 6. The first beast was like a lion, the, there's Matthew, the, the king. The second beast like a calf, there's Mark, the ox. The third beast was like a face of a man, there's Luke, the man. And the fourth beast was like a flying eagle, and there's John, the God. And the, fourth, the four beasts, each had them of them six wings about him, and they were full of eyes within, and they rest not day and night, saying, Holy, 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 Isaiah 6, 3, God Almighty, which was and is and is to come. And when those beasts give glory and honor and thanks to him that sat on the throne, who liveth forever and ever, the four and twenty elders fall down before him that sat on the throne and worship him, that liveth forever and ever, and cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. Thou hast created all things, that governmental structure again, for thy pleasure they are and were created. What do they do when they cast their crowns? Authority, see. They're... Their authority to operate in God's creation. But they don't, when they cast their crown down, they're not operating independent. They're his servants. They're his workers. They're out doing his will and his purpose. Now watch 5.1. And I saw in the right hand of him that sat on the throne a book written within on the backside, sealed with seven seals. So we've got a book. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the book and to loose the seals of it? So we're in the throne room, and the question that the angel asked, who is worthy? So they, so they are looking for someone worthy to open the book. The father, he's the one sitting on the throne with the book. He's looking for someone who is worthy. So they're asking everybody, are you worthy? Who's worthy? Who's worthy? So the father is teaching these guys in the, in the throne room, we're looking for someone who's worthy to open the seals. Verse 3, no man in heaven nor in earth, neither under the earth, was able to open the book, neither to look thereon. What did they do? They went around looking for someone who is worthy to open the book. And you know what they found? They found nobody. And I wept much because no man was found worthy to open and to read the book, neither to look thereon. And one of the elders saith unto me, Weep not. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, hath prevailed to open the book and to loose the seal, the seven seals thereof. And I beheld, and lo, in the midst of the throne and of the four beasts, and in the midst of the elders stood a lamb, as it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent forth 
into all the earth. He came and took the book out of the hand of him that sat upon the throne. You know what? The elders knew. How did they know? The father had been educating them on who was worthy to open the book. He asked the question, who's worthy? And then he gives them the qualifications to be worthy, which is to do the lamb as it had been slain. They go looking for the lamb, and they can't find him. They can't find the one who is worthy. See, the father educated them. Here's the worthy. Here's who's worthy. It's the lamb that was slain before the world began. It's the lamb. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the one who came and died and was buried. And I rose again the third day. And he sat here and we sent him back to do. He's the one that's worthy. You see, the point here is that there's an angelic host who is working with the father who are instructed by the Father, who are taught on how to do His will, how to find the worthy one. So what are they doing? They're out there carrying it out. And when we come back to Mark 16, which it's time to quit 10 minutes ago, that governmental structure in the heaven is designed to execute and carry out His will. Now, for us, think about us today in the age of grace. We learn what God's will is from his word. Then we go out and we execute his will. Thus saith the Lord, bam. What would he have? He would have all men be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. You see, he gives us the responsibility to go out into our lives and to apply his word to the details of our lives. And you know what? We have freedom to apply it. We have the freedom and the equipping of his word to be able to go figure out how to take his word and apply it to the details of our life because your life doesn't look like my life. My life doesn't look like your life, so it's going to be applied differently, but it's ultimately going to do what? Same thing. And that's execute his will. God has always designed his, to have his creation to, to be intelligent, to be informed, and then have this willingness, this choice to go out and to take the truth and apply it to the details of life. So when Mark 16, 19 says here, and he sat at the right hand, on the right hand of God, that, there's something deeper happening here than him just going up and sitting down. See, there's a whole, he is now the head over that as the rightful ruler of the universe. He's going there in order to be the king that's, and sit on the throne. That's what Peter says in Acts 2. But ultimately, he's going so to sit there as that rightful ruler. Now, you and I, we're going to take up the heavenly government part. He's our head. We'll be in our positions. It, he will be the king over all of it. Israel will be his kingdom, but David will be set back on the throne, and then Israel will fill it out. Okay? 
Now, we're going to pick up and do a few more things next time, all right? If I lost you, just hang on. We'll lose you again next week, all right? All right, you got to think about this. There's more going on than, than what, you know, we've been taught in our past, I'm sure. But when you look at it and you begin to think about it, it's like, wow, he didn't set up creations for everybody to be a robot. He could have, but he didn't want that. He wants a creation who willingly loves him freely, comes and says, I want to understand, I want to know, and as soon as I do, I'll delight to do thy will, O Lord. And that's what he's doing, okay? All right, Dearly Father, we thank you for the evening, Lord. We thank you for your word, and above all, Lord, we just thank you for who we are in your Son, for all the spiritual blessings, for the completenesses that you've given us, for, and for our home in the heavenly places to fill up and to fill all in all in that heavenly structure. In your name we pray, amen.